0: The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network.
1: Discover the Power Within Unity Online Radio The Voice of an Awakening World
0: Discover a Positive Path for Spiritual Living Welcome to Voices of Unity with Reverend Ellen Devonport.
2: This is Voices of (laughs) Unity. Our voices are various new thought leaders that we invite onto the show so that we can go deeply into their life's work, into their topics, uh, so that you can learn more and dive deeper spiritually, and so we can just be better informed. It's... um, This is the month that we are doing Pride Month, the month of June, and we're thrilled today to have a special guest, Bishop Yvette Flunder, who is many, many things, but we in Unity, I guess, know her best as the founder and leader of the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries, which is something we'll talk about as we go. She's also the founder and pastor of City of Refuge in Oakland, California, which is – we'll talk about that, too. I think it's a church for the marginalized. She's done so many things. She spoke at the Obama White House for World AIDS Day a few years ago. She was named a spiritual hero by Science of Mind magazine a few years ago. So welcome to the show, Bishop Flunder.
3: Thank you so much, Ellen. I appreciate the invitation.
2: We're glad to have you. So you have an extensive bio which people can go online and read. But besides that, how would you describe yourself?
3: Well, I would, I would describe myself as an evolving uh, practitioner, an evolving theologian. I would describe myself as a, a person joyfully in process.
4: <laughs>
3: mm-hmm. um, I'm not um, even marginally uh, afraid of the shifts and changes uh, that have occurred with me theologically. And uh, spiritually, I love the being in what I call the fresh wind of God and good and uh, enjoying the journey. It's been quite something, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> from where it began to where it is now. It, it really has been quite something, but it's been a beautiful, beautiful journey, and I'm still on it. Of course. Thanks be to God. I'm still on it.
2: And I want to trace the journey, but first I ran across a couple of phrases just in reading about you that I would love for you to define for us. One is radical inclusivity, and the other is salt and light.
3: Mm -hmm. We coined the phrase radical inclusivity uh, because we heard a lot about um, multi-faith, multi-denominational, multi-racial settings. Uh, that are called inclusive. And sometimes I think that inclusivity is limited to what the dominant presence, the dominant culture, the dominant religion, the dominant race is comfortable with. And so we have our premise is that we have to radicalize inclusivity. And a, a better way to say it, and the way I teach it, is that we have to go all the way to what we believe is the furthest margin and make sure that our inclusivity is inclusive of those who are on the furthest margin. Because if you go to the furthest, furthest margin, you'll catch everybody either going out or coming back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the intention. So we, we give thought to what or who. Or what people or what group of people are the furthest from the margins or uh, on the furthest margins of religion and society and popular thought and make it our business to try to craft how we serve and how we worship and how we reach out to those that are on the furthest margin. So that's what we mean when we say radical inclusivity.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Right? Right. Um, I think the other piece of it is that we are called to be salt and we are called to be light. And for me, uh, it, it sort of comes from the idea that the word salt uh, in, the, in the text, in the, in the Bible, both means something that preserves and something that is a derivative word for wisdom. I find that very interesting. Hmm. Uh, the word salt is the same word for both. And I think of it as preserving during, during the time that folks the salt was as valuable as gold. Right. During the salt trade, and, and because of its ability without uh, refrigerators and ice to preserve meat and food, mm-hmm. it was extremely valuable and extremely important as a preservative, much more so than it was as something that enhanced the taste of food. And and I like the passage that says, and if a salt has lost its ability to be salty, what good is it? Mm-hmm. And I see um, people who are hearing from spirit in very real and profound ways right now being responsible to add wisdom as salt Love as salt, kindness as salt, but also action as salt in our present time. You know, I'm a person that believes in in intention, but I believe in intention that is informed by action. So the idea of salt both being a preservative and also being wisdom sort of makes that connection to me. It, It has an active use. And then it has sort of an ethereal use, you know, a a spiritual use. Mm -hmm. Wisdom connected to literal preservation or the preserving of food so people could eat and survive means that we can connect spirit with action. All action and no spirit. Then we're running around like chickens with our heads cut off. (laughs) All spirit and no action. Then what we are doing is leaving the necessary action to others i think we have to be connected in to both of those realities to really make change
2: okay so i i don't even know where to start with your life story how did okay. you how did you get where you are now how did you grow up and come out and start your career and end up where you are
3: well I grew up in uh, a rather insular uh, African-American Pentecostal family. Mm -hmm. My people uh, were of the diaspora that left Texas and came to California uh, early, uh, just before World War II. And my grandfather, who was a preacher, and in many ways, so was my grandmother and my mother, though they weren't allowed to call themselves right. They came here when my mother was very young. My mother used to say that you could go for weeks without seeing anybody black in San Francisco when they came, until World War II hit. And when World War II hit, black people came in waves to work uh, in the shipyards in Oakland, Alameda, San Francisco, and what's called the Hunter's Point area Marin City. These were places in Northern California where there was a huge need for what was called stevedores or longshoremen, Mm -hmm. and folks that would do support work. And then, of course, several people were in the military. And then several of them also worked on the trains. The trains were very active during the time of World War II, of course, transporting troops, but also transporting people as a principal means of transportation. So my granddad worked on the railroad. My grandmother was a really good cook. (laughs) And those two things together made it work. Mm -hmm. for them to come to California and begin a work. So I was raised as a Pentecostal uh, and I was a happy child. You know, it was very, um, we were very close, very tribal almost, you know. Everybody's kids were everybody's kids. Mm -hmm. We all sort of lived in the same neighborhood. We went to school together and church together and shopped at the same stores. We were somewhat limited because we were uh, black folks. We couldn't go everywhere, but we were with each other a great deal. And my departure from, um, in many ways, the Pentecostal church was not because um, I didn't feel like I was really uh, a part of it. I was deep in it. And as and we say highborn, because I was the child of bishops and preachers and leaders, they were on the front line, you know. But my departure was really like threefold. First of all, because... I sensed myself, as a woman, being called to ministry in an atmosphere that didn't believe that that could happen for women. Right. It was not egalitarian in that way. Um, Men had to be uh, the preachers and leaders, and women were the the support system. And I believed in myself good in in terms of being a a supporter, but I also felt that I had the skills to do leadership and also um, preach. I knew it early, early on, and it became evident they didn't know exactly what to do with me, so it was problematic. So, <laughs> there was that.
1: <laughs> you knew, but no one else got the memo.
3: <laughs> oh yes, honey, it, it was a real situation. They kind of think of something to call me, you know. they called me a messenger. They couldn't call me a preacher, you know. Mm-hmm. So and, and some some of them called me a missionary. So so I was just trying to come up with something to call me. Um, and I was a bit of a prodigy. I was one of those kids that, you know, I read the Bible through like three times and um, kept getting, <laughs> having problems with how, what we said the Bible said and what I actually read. Mm-hmm. You know, So, and questioning, always questioning. So I would say that my feeling called to a full charge of ministry, as we called it as a woman, was problematic. I think the second thing that was problematic for me is that we did so little uh, justice work in in our... You know, we were were preparing to go to heaven most of the time. You know, trying to live a sin-free life Mm -hmm. as much as we could so that we could go to heaven. Because going to heaven was based upon whether or not we had any sin in our lives. So it was a perpetual effort to live free from sin,
4: right?
3: You know, it was just all the time, and and it was it took so much of your consciousness. You didn't have a whole lot of time to be worried about other folks, you know. Mm. It, it, you're trying to get yourself in line with God, so that you could. And then, of course, God was also um, sort of sensitive, you know. That if you didn't do what you were supposed to do, stuff would happen to you. You know, you have a car wreck, or you you get sick. Oh, you know. God was sensitive and punitive. Yeah. So, and that was the way that we understood God. That's the way. That's the God that we worshipped. And you know, for lack of a better way to say it, so a lot of our attention was trying to get right with this the God that was like an alcoholic father. You know, mm-hmm. he, he, would, he would get you if you uh, if you crossed him. You know, yeah. and that was the way we were taught. And and then I think the third departure, and and people often think that. It is my primary departure, but it was not. The third departure was when I sensed myself to be a same-gender loving woman. And Mm -hmm. I I say that it was not my primary departure because uh, I was not alone. Everything I know about human sexuality, I learned in church. Hmm. Everything. I just need to kind of put a, a pregnant pause right yeah. there. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, I'm you know. have so many questions.
3: <laughs> oh, yeah. It was a huge underground, you know. I, I never had to step outside the church to to learn about human sexuality. But what was coupled with sex and sexuality was secrecy. Hmm. It was a requirement. Yeah. And we, we sort of had a club. And the club was that, let me say it the way that the old, old black folks used to say it, they said one clean sheet can't dirty another. What they were suggesting is that two holy people that got together wasn't the same as a holy person attaching themselves to somebody who was unholy.
0: Hmm. That made
3: you no, know, I, I know no. it doesn't make sense, but it, it, it worked. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So as long as you stayed within our sphere. And you didn't go out there and you know take take your body and, and and use it among the people who were you know ungodly. It wasn't the same thing as as uh, sin in the sense that so so it was an underground that had an understanding, and one of those understandings was the the secrecy, the subterfuge of continuing that reality, and I. And, uh, you know, from my conversations with a lot of people, the reality still exists, just like it does in the cloister of the Catholic Church, right. or the cloister of the Baptist Church, or the cloister of any group of people where there are human beings who have sex organs. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the, these realities do exist. We are not healthy around sex, most of us who are involved in religion. We, we don't, we're not able to have open conversations about human sexuality, so everything is closeted. And, and I think that to some degree, there's a certain joy that comes from that. You know, there's something that's very titillating about closets, you know?
4: Um,
3: <laughs> you know, and, and if, you, if you push the envelope a little bit, which is what I teach my people, even in the canonization of scripture and in the making of, of uh, Jesus after his death, what it was that those that canonized the text did, they took any um, any expression that he would have had around uh, pleasure and passion away from him altogether.
4: hmm Right.
3: They will suggest that he was very human, very man, and very God simultaneously. But what very man do you know that does not have some reality of human sexuality in their lives? hmm And that was the way that we were basically taught from the very beginning that there was something problematic about human sexuality. It was a necessary evil, but an evil nonetheless. So it pushed us all to the closet. And that departure became a real problem for me because I was of the opinion, beloved, that there's no way in the world that God would have made me like I am, you know, fearfully as the, as the King James says, and wondrously made. Right. There's no way in the world that God would have made me who I am, and then require me to lie about it and hide it in order to do the work of God in the earth. Those two things don't make any sense. To mm-hmm. me. So I said, either I'm going to have I'm going to tell the truth and stay, or I'm going to tell the truth and leave. But I am going to tell the truth. And that was the thing that closed the door for my being able to go back to the church of my youth. I wasn't alone. There were a lot of me. And still, there's a lot of folks like me in the church. I was different primarily because I refused to lie about it. So in action or word. So I would not lie about it. What year that was that? That the beginning. Yeah.
1: Wait. What year was that?
3: Oh, wow. Let me see. Shirley and I have been together 35 years now. Okay. And so um, it would have been about maybe eight or ten years before that, maybe.
1: So in the 80s? Yep, yeah,
3: okay. definitely in the 80s. So I was in my 30s, uh, you know, early 30s, middle 30s, about there. But, you know, it. I have not looked back.
1: And so, did was there like I said, so many questions. So you, the oh, yeah. the door of the church closed, and and what about your family? Because you talked, you know, you prefaced all of this with the sort of tribalism of your family group.
3: Mm-hmm. And I was I was uh, alienated. Mm. Yes, now without question, you know, I think probably the the thing I cared most about is what happened in my relationship with my mother. Uh, we were born on the same day. 22 years apart. And, um, you know, my mother, what can I say? You know, she is passed away now. <clears throat> but my mother was my joy uh, and my challenge because uh, my mother had two children, and both of us are gay. So she became the common denominator. And, of course, one of the things that sometimes same-dent loving people don't fully realize is that when we come out and we come out publicly, that we force our parents out too in some yeah. interesting ways, and they have to deal with their own communities, um, and they're often blamed. What what did she do? That's what you know. Oh. What did she do that caused both of both of her children? To be singed in the loving
1: children. Mm-hmm. Right, because this is all um, in the context of the, the punishing God, the temperamental, moody God.
3: Christ. Right. And so, in some ways, for her to thrive, she had to, to alienate us mm-hmm. and say, Well, um, you know, I, I'm i just praying for them that they'll change, you know, oh, yeah. and that God will cheer, turn them around. <clears throat> but at the same time, she suffered the absence, uh, our absence from her, and we suffered her absence from us, you know, and I received the revelation one day that I needed to do something to repair that with my mother, because she, <clears throat> I get a little emotional. Good she uh, was not, uh, she couldn't do it. She, she was from a generation before me and, and it was her whole life, you see, her whole life. Mm-hmm. And so um, it came to me one day and I called her. I said, Mama, um, how you doing? You know, and she, she gave me dust, as I call it. She said, fine. You know, that kind of sound. Oh, fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> so I said, so um, I'm coming to see you today. She said, so what? what are we going to be doing? And I said, we're going shopping. So there was this big pause, right? She said, where are we going shopping? So I knew I had really gotten the victory at that point. So I told her where I was going to take her to all of her stores, the places that she liked to go, you know, and liked to shop. Uh, And that was all I said. And when we picked her up, we went to the first of many, many, many shopping trips
4: Mm -hmm.
3: before we started talking theologically. Mm hmm as it dawned on me that i needed to build a relationship with my mother again from the place of my truth you understand from the place of my authenticity so we hung out and we hung out and then while we were out there shopping you know i knew her spots you know off Fifth and and uh what's that one nordstrom's rack you know i knew my mother all right <laughs> so I was carrying her bags one day and then she started asking me now, you bet, you know, I need to understand some things. And when she started asking me, I started talking to her, you know, mm-hmm. and I kept talking to her. And then she would ask me other things and she would ponder and she would push back. But she kept asking. And eventually we started really talking about, you know, lots of things theological things and God things and earth things and sex things. And and she stopped me one day in the middle of answering a question that she asked me, and she said, shut up, Yvette. I said, okay. And I shut up. Mm. (laughs) Which which she did when my mother said it, right? Uh I said, okay. And I stopped talking. And in, in a few minutes, she came back. She said, because if what you are saying to me is the truth, then that suggests that for 60 years of my life, I have believed something that I did not have to believe. Mm. And she said, you do understand that that makes me feel like a fool. And I said to her, I said, Mama, basically what you have just done is put your finger on the reason why people cannot have fresh revelation and change. It is because we make holy a practice that we no longer really believe in simply because of its longevity. It has become culture for us. Mm -hmm. And we'll defend it because we cannot believe that we could have given this much of our life to something sacrificially that we really never really had to do and never really had to believe. And the end of the story is we got very close. Again, she got very close to my partner, to Shirley. She got very close. We got very close until she actually came to be a part of our organization. My mother became a part of our fellowship. And I cannot even express to you what an incredible blessing it was to my whole soul and body to have my mother right alongside me, praying with me and for me while we were giving birth to the Fellowship of Affirming Ministry. Oh. It was incredible. Yeah. And that's and that's a huge blessing, but it was a huge lesson about what we owe our parents and those who raised us to give them time and space to make the changes and shifts. I did not want to abandon my mother. You know? Mm-hmm. I didn't want to just leave her out there. How much? But I also knew... That it would take some time for the, for my mother to come along, right? Know?
1: And that and that's what I'm curious of. How much time passed, you know, before you got the revelation that that you were going to make it right with her?
3: Uh you know, I pushed back for a little while, yeah. you know, yeah, because you know she she wasn't she was not a woman of of a few words. You know, mm. <laughs> she could, she could really let you know how she was feeling, you know. <laughs> She, she didn't fake the funk, as we say sometimes, no. <laughs> about anything, <laughs> not my mother. Um, so it took a while. You know, it took, a, uh, I imagine we didn't really talk really good for about, you know, four or five years. Yeah. We couldn't. It was just too hard, you know, mm-hmm. and I couldn't hear her and she couldn't hear me. And I, I realized that it wasn't about me converting her to understanding what it was for her to be same gender for me to be same gender because it wasn't her reality you know right. and it wasn't about her converting me to going back to living a life of self-hatred and self-loathing because that wasn't going to be my reality either mm-hmm. we had to find something else and I'll give you one other thing my mother came to my church many times after we made these transitions to sit with us and to rejoice with us and to, she preached for me and, and helped me counsel my people and the whole deal and i remember one day she said well bishop I'm,
2: I'm going to stop you there because we've got to take a break no, uh, and i, I do okay. want to hear more of it we will be back okay. with bishop okay. yvette flunder after these messages okay. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, celebrating Pride Month with the LGBTQ community.
1: Unity Online Radio is bringing the message of unity to thousands of spiritual seekers around the world. If you enjoy our programming... We invite you to support it by visiting unityonlineradio.org and clicking on Donate Now. Help us continue to provide inspiring content to everyone. Thank you for your support.
2: Here's a Unity Teachable Moment with Rev. Wendy Craig Purcell taken from a talk called The Plan Unfolds.
0: I know in those times
2: in my life where the changes have been hard and difficult and painful, that one of the things that has helped me to deal with them is to realize, oh my gosh, this is not just ultimately
0: for my own growth and my own benefit, but it's gonna help me in some way to be a benefit of other people. And so very important
2: to this idea of true new beginnings is that it usually begins not with something that we've changed out here and have said we want this to be the new beginning, but we're beginning to feel
0: something moving or healing or changing inside of ourselves.
2: To find a Unity Church near you, visit unity.org. Did you know Unity has published a new book by Eric Butterworth? This wonderful writer and teacher who is loved by so many people left a recorded class called Practical Metaphysics that has now been turned into a book. It's vintage Butterworth. He explains how to live from a deeper state of consciousness and awaken to health, love, prosperity, and peace of mind. Practical Metaphysics. Find it online by going to unity.org and click Shop.
0: Recovery from addiction can be a lonely experience. Get help and support with Rev. Lonnie Vanderslice, Rev. Dan Beckett, and Spirit of Recovery every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Central. Welcome to a place where spirituality and recovery meet. Each week you'll hear stories and topics that are important to the recovery community. Tune in for some lively conversation and join in with your questions and comments. Nearly 21 million people struggle with addiction in America. Reach out and join us here on UnityOnlineRadio.org. Call now with your question or comment. 816 251 3555. That's 816 251 3555. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Voices of Unity with Reverend Ellen Devonport.
2: We're back with Voices of Unity in today's Pride series. We have Bishop Yvette Flunder from the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries. So glad to have her here. And we just kept talking during the break. So just to finish where we were, I was thanking her for telling that story of her mother because it hadn't occurred to me that part of what parents of gay people have to do is is maybe admit that they've been wrong. And she was saying, we need to do better by them.
3: Yeah, would you I agree. say a little more because, about that? Yes, yes we, we we need to understand that the, that coming out is not just for the individual. When a person comes out, in many ways, they out their entire family, mm-hmm. in a manner of speaking, in terms of how the family may well be thought of as deficient because of their coming out. And I think that what we we owe our, our parents and our families is time and space to make that shift, but we also owe them our, the celebration and appreciation that gives them another community of people to love them and support them while they are also coming out, coming out in the terms of acceptance and affirmation. Because it's a big job for some of our parents mm-hmm. and, and, and family members, you know. I believe that the LGBT community becomes a full community When it honors its elders, straight or gay, and when it cares deeply for its children, and children of the flesh or spirit, anything short of that is just a narcissistic walk, you know? (laughs) I think that when we become community is when we care for our elders and care deeply for our kids. Mm -hmm. That's a huge, important part of that. So I, I came to that. Where my mother was concerned, and it gave me patience with her. My mother became my greatest
2: champion.
3: Yeah. I love her while she sleeps. I (sighs) love her. Yeah. She became my greatest champion.
2: So, you emerged from your Pentecostal upbringing, and you were in San Francisco, and it was the 80s. That was Mm -hmm. the AIDS epidemic. Right. How were you involved? I was there. What'd you do? Well,
3: we were involved from the very beginning. When it was called GRID,
2: Mm -hmm.
3: uh, Gay-Related Syndrome, Gay-Related, let's see, Gay-Related, it'll come to me.
4: (laughs)
2: Immunological (laughs) immune immune disorder?
3: Yeah, something like that. But I remember the days very well. And it was an AIDS-related syndrome as well. Um, It's it's amazing to me how far back we go, 30-plus years ago. And we had an underground compound Q clinic before compound Q became AZT, where there were some renegade nurses and doctors, and down in the basement of our church, we would have uh, intravenous compound Q up on coat hangers. Uh, And some of the people, by the way, that took the drug when it was experimental are still alive. Wow. Hmm. But that's how far back we go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember the, the, the whole idea, oh, gay-related immunodeficiency disease, that was great. Um, the whole idea of, of people thinking that, that HIV was the punishment of God against gay people was something that we worked very hard from the beginning to debunk
4: mm-hmm. and get
3: people to understand it was an equal opportunity virus and helped them understand how it was spread, and so forth and so on. But the most important part of that ministry was handling people who were HIV positive, because so many of their families didn't want to eat around them. They didn't want to breathe the same air. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to be in proximity to them. It was uh, horrible. It was just absolutely horrible, and and thought of as punishment from God. Um, you know, uh, it's quick. We're we're quick to do that. And and I've I've spent a lot of time telling people that this is what we do for every flu epidemic. When the cholera was an epidemic, when polio was an epidemic, there was always some prophet who believed that God was punishing some group of people. (laughs) And usually the prophet was not in the groups that God was punishing. Right, right. So... um, we had a lot of conversation about those things uh, in the early years. We, we did the first house that was done by a faith-based organization in San Francisco. And this San Francisco, of course, was an epicenter yeah. for um, HIV and for HIV services, but not from the faith community. So we established a house in um, Oakland, California, for people living with HIV before there was any funding. And, you know, I know what it is to change bedpans and to uh, condom catheters and to pick people up and put them in a the car because ambulances won't come and get them. Oh. That's where we began this work. Uh, we did the first house for women living with HIV in San Francisco, and they were also women in recovery. So we go back many, many years, lots of work trying to educate people in faith communities And in the uh, the African-American community and communities of color about transmission and having uh, running into, you know, constant and perpetual pushback against that um, from the people who were really afraid of the virus um, in in truth, which is, of course, what made them demonize and vilify people. And then, of course, people who were not getting treatment and stay in treatment in long-term care. Because they didn't want to be seen in a clinic, you know, right? uh, Because of the stigma that's attached to it. So we've been doing that for years. We have done um, work with the CDC. We have done work with basically every department of Department of Health and Human Services around HIV over the years. Then, of course, on the continent of Africa, and we supported an orphanage there that was serving children who were the children of people who had died with. HIV-related issues, uh, supported a clinic there. Um, Some of the children were themselves infected, and this was in Zimbabwe, in the Mutoko area of Zimbabwe. Uh, We've served on just about every national and international uh, HIV and AIDS-related group, and I served at the pleasure of the last real president that we had. Uh, President Barack Obama on his uh, AIDS council uh, for a number of years. And so we go back uh, providing those services for a very long time. And there's a theology, of course, associated with that. It had to do with the fact that people died, not so much because of the virus, but because they wouldn't get in and stay in care. And that had everything to do with what, and how how poor the theology was around this, essentially, that the shame and the disgrace you know people were you know dying every day from high blood pressure and cancer and diabetes, but there was no shame or disgrace associated with eating yourself to death. There was a shame or disgrace associated with having HIV yeah. that caused people you know to, to shun their families and then people to shun themselves and 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 be involved in what i call slow suicide you know yeah. so that was the real enemy that's what enabled the virus to, to grab hold in the way in which it did you know so i can honestly say now that i have some of the longest living folks uh in my congregation and in within the fellowship folks that have <laughs> have been hiv survivors for decades mm-hmm. now, which is that's a living wonder to me. But it has everything to do with self-love and self-care, everything to do with that. And I'm grateful. I'm very grateful. I've also buried myself, a little over 130 people whose mm. funeral I had, uh, I was the officiant for. And that pains me. Uh, but I'm also grateful for the ones who have lived. And I don't know how to number the ones who have lived. We can number the ones who died. Right, but we cannot number the ones who lived because we got a chance to be involved in it. So, so very involved and engaged in HIV services, and involved and engaged in in the services when I, this is after I left the church of my youth. I stopped going to church, by the way, for a period of time, and church began to be service for me, mm-hmm. service for people with HIV, service to frail elderly people. Where we established. Uh, feeding food programs and housing programs and transportation programs and legal aid for the elderly, for seniors throughout uh, San Francisco and Oakland and our area here. Deeply engaged. Church began to be service. (laughs) Serving people was my temple, my worship, you know,
4: Mm -hmm.
3: And, and deeply engaged, deeply involved in that. And was going along doing just fine, doing HIV work, doing uh, senior work, reaching out to uh, special needs children. Um, we'd open a foster care program, a specialized foster care program for children who were troubled and hard to place. And I was just enjoying it. And my truth is, I was driving along the freeway on my way home one night, and I was arrested by the Holy Spirit in my car. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, okay And I've been doing this work long, well, long enough to know When I'm hearing the voice of God And the voice of the divine In my spirit, in my consciousness And it was so tangible I pulled over to the side of the road And I had this Pentecostal moment in my car Where I could hear clearly That it was time for me to come back to a pulpit and come back to a church or establish a church with the things that I had learned while I was in exile funny.
4: Uh-huh.
3: And I argued with God about this. Mm-hmm. I said well these things are not going to homogenize it's just not going to happen and then I realized that the same God that was calling me the same spirit and wind that was in my car that day was the spirit and wind that was going to make a way for it to happen. And that was the genesis of City of Refuge. Not long after that, we established a church, City of Refuge. It wasn't a United Church of Christ. It was an independent church. City of Refuge is the mother church for the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries. And the model um, in that ministry is the same model, that now has been replicated again and again in the churches that have either come to us or that we have helped to plant throughout the United States and now with a robust number of churches on the continent of Africa and in Asia and in Mexico. You know, and it's just such a, it's been such a wonderful journey, but it all actually was born out of this, i getting pulled over by the Holy Spirit <laughs> on the freeway one day. <laughs> and having to, to find ways to connect. You, you, you hear my heart trying to connect what it was that I learned in exile from church and religion. Right. So connecting social justice work, active work in helping people with what really is a spirit walk. That's why I call it the third Pentecost. It is a Pentecostal movement. You know, the great leaders of Pentecost and the great leaders of New Thought were, were moving around in the earth at pretty much the same time. Yes. But they didn't connect to one another. And, and the chasm had to do with race. It also had to do with, uh, that's what it said would be elitism to some degree. Mm-hmm. They, they couldn't connect because for certain people didn't interact with certain people. Right. It just didn't happen. So uh, um, a predominantly white movement of spirit and a predominantly black movement of spirit could not really be one movement because the issues of race, the issues of gender, uh, in terms of... of how gender was perceived, who got who God will use for leadership. The, the the ideas were so polar that even the Holy Spirit couldn't get them together. And that's really quite something, you know. <laughs> and I believe that what is happening for us right now, sisters, what I believe is that God and spirit is giving us an opportunity to revisit this whole conversation and see if we are ready now to push back against the things that divided us, push back against uh, elitism, push back against racism, push back against exceptionalism, push back. Can we find our way as spirit people? Because Ernest Holmes and Charles Harrison Mason were both men of spirit, but they could not be together for all of the reasons that all of us understand right now. Mm -hmm. I think that the entire family that is the beginnings of unity, the unity movement, probably wouldn't be able to conscience a pack of black people being uh, equal, an egalitarian relationship. I think there are a lot of men who would not have been able to have that experience with women. But we have a chance. We have another opportunity to see if we really can come together in spirit and connect together authentically and imagine the force that, for change that we can be, the force for healing that we can be if we really can leapfrog over those realities that have divided us. That's what I feel we are called to do. That is why I believe that there is something powerful about the Unity Movement, the Centers for Spiritual Living, what Michael Beckwith is doing, what Carlton Pearson is doing, what William Barber is doing, what the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries is doing. Imagine all of us together anywhere at the same place with one mind. Imagine what we could accomplish That's powerful, yes. Isn't that something? I mean, imagine, and that's what I'm pushing for. That's what I am seeing in the spirit, and I believe that that's the reason that God arrested me on the freeway. On the <laughs> home. Radical For inclusivity, like yeah. yeah, and that's where I think we are going. That's what I believe. But I'm, and I'm a, I'm a Methodist Episcopal, metaphysical, of <laughs> physical, you know. <laughs> About that, huh?
1: Well, and you don't just believe it, but but you're working to make that happen. You're working to make that shift happen and to see that. So, how do Absolutely. you? What kind of conversations are you having, you know, with your congregation to affect that change?
3: Well, we talk about what we now call the common Christ, where we are trying to end this idea of siloing as Christians, as though. We cannot be followers of the life and work of Jesus Christ and and simultaneously affirm our Muslim and Sikh brothers and sisters, our people who practice indigenous or earth-based faith, because there is a common, what we call a common Christ, a common manifestation of God made flesh. Hallelujah. I had a moment yeah. when I said that. <laughs> and, and our ability to find that without uh, being in any way, dim- or without in any way diminishing other people's paths and to their understandings of God, gives us an opportunity for being universal in that way. But we still don't have to give up what it is that may, uh, uh can I say, uh, ethnically or um, uh, culturally feel comfortable for all of us. So I clap on the two and the four. <laughs> <laughs> you feel me? Mm-hmm. Yes. I suspect I'm always going to clap on the two and the four. We're getting better about me, that. <sighs> there you go. So, you know, it works for me. But I don't have to. I don't have to consider people who clap on the one and the three to be deficient in some way. <laughs> So what, what 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 happens is all all of the spaces get clapped. You you understand what? right? <laughs> right. We got clapping on the one, two, three, and four. So, <laughs> so, but there's something about that as a metaphor that suggests that there's room in space because God has. And, and I use these phrases: extravagant grace, relentless hospitality. The heart of God is filled with extravagant grace. Radical inclusivity, relentless hospitality, and we would do well to do that.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And, and I know that you, you, you asked the question or said something about why we call ourselves a city of refuge. And when, when the name was first given to us by spirit, it was given to us because the cities of refuge in the, in the Hebrew Bible were a place that you could go no matter what you'd done. If you could get to a city of refuge, the, the person that was after you to, to kill you or to harm you because of something that you were guilty of could not do it because the cities of refuge were a haven for forgiveness. Mm. And that is what I think about the mm-hmm. heart of God is a haven for forgiveness, a haven for restoration. Restoration. A haven for safety, and if if all of us who are in this work would see it that way, I think that what we could do is really bring what is the heart of God into our work, both by what we pray for and the things that we act to bring to pass so that's what got me involved and engaged in it and got me you know moving in that moving in that direction and Hopefully, connecting the dots and continuing to plant churches and organizations that are also seeing it that way. So,
2: it's so okay. I don't I don't want to run out of time before we talk about okay. the fellowship of affirming ministries. We have about four mm-hmm. or five minutes. Okay, what is it, and what is what is its purpose?
3: Well, very much what we have just discussed. I think. To expand it, it would be we are encouraging our leaders, first of all, to get some real theological training. Because the real task is not so much learning, it is unlearning. Mm -hmm. That unlearning is is tough stuff. So I encourage and have, you know, been raising money for a number of years to help people through the process of theological education. And uh, I'm happy to say that we've passed the 100 mark now nice. in terms of seeing folks do theological training in some of the great schools that we have in the United States and outside of the United States that we partner with. That's vitally important because mm-hmm. knowledge is power. Uh, the, the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries is not a denomination. Even though we've been encouraged to be one by a lot of people, we push back really hard against it. We are not a denomination. We are made up of churches and organizations and faith-based um, entrepreneurial and um, service organizations that often are affiliated with a denomination. I'm also a UCC, ordained as a UCC and MCC. Right. A uh, clergy person. But the fellowship is not a denomination because the fellowship, the best way to say it is a y'all come. okay we have you know certain requirements for membership because there's certain services that people desire but basically the door opens easy in both directions so we want people to come and be a part and we are about trying to find ways to be in kinship with one another that's real and authentic I'll give you a case in point. We have water baptisms sometimes when we get together. And so we get in the water because a lot of our faiths get in the water or have water poured on them, you mm-hmm. know. And we ask people, what, what do you want said over you in your baptism? Some people like the, the language of the King James. They want to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Mm-hmm. We have people who want to be Creator, Christ, and Holy Spirit. We have people who want their ancestors' names called over. We have people who want to be baptized in the name of their Orisha. It's amazing. But at the end of the day, when we come out of the water, we're all, all of us are wet. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's room enough for us to support one another in all of our many faith paths. So our outreach goes out to people who are, are opening The beauty of being gay, might I say, is the beauty of opening ourselves to celebrate our otherness, Mm -hmm. which is so powerful. When we together can celebrate that we are not cookie-cutter versions of each other. Mm -hmm. What we are is unique, and by decision, intention, We've come together to do something that is greater than what we can be by ourselves. But we don't have to all be alike. That's the great joy. I thank God every day that I am gay. Every day. I used to, to ask God to help me not to be
4: mm-hmm.
3: But now I understand the real beauty of being in exile, of being rejected, and of finding God on the edges, because now I really understand other people who are on the edges, and to help them to celebrate their otherness, whatever their otherness is, their uniqueness, whatever their uniqueness is, is really the heart and soul of what we do. And when we get together, some of us clap on the two and the four, some of us clap on the one and the three, right? That's uh, right. But we but we have a great time.
4: Yeah.
3: We have a great time. It's powerful, it's spiritual, it's authentic, it's real, it heals us to go back into a world that judges us all the time. Yeah. What a blessing it is to be able to do that. You know what, a, you
2: what a beautiful ending to the show. Thank you so much, Bishop yeah, Flunder thank you. for My being God. with us. We may have to have you back just to hear more of the story
3: going to be important okay <laughs> we'll, we'll keep talking okay yeah okay. we'll keep
2: talking thank you so much all right i
3: love you bye i right,
2: love you
0: thanks for listening this is unity online radio the voice of an awakening world